I ended up coining a, a forecast rhythm because I had no idea what we were going to bill every month until three weeks after the month was over and we had the month closed. And again, I couldn't make the right fiscal decisions if I didn't know, you know roughly what we were going to look like 90 days out, 80, 188 days out. So the difference for me, guys, was it wasn't a sales forecast rhythm because it wasn't at the ops level, like the opportunity level. It was based on invoicing. So I had to pivot a little bit with it and you know, a bit of learning there. But now we run this incredible, you know, every Wednesday forecast review with my head architects. And not only you know, are these guys within one or two percent every month as far as accuracy, which is incredible. I wish I would have got that from my old sales team. But they are also we're sharing this with the entire teams. We've built a whole bonus structure now around our forecast reviews top to bottom back to culture we continue to add value to the culture which in turn continues to show efficiency gain which in turn continues to make us more money so it's a, just the coolest equation but to your question chris it doesn't happen if you don't start these cadences and have these rhythms you have to have that welcome to a best practice a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, I'm very, very, very excited to be joined by Shane Balcom. Shane is Managing Director at Rossman Architecture, Inc. He's an operational leader who has had a massive impact on their business. He also has a really broad background, not traditional, and you might even call himself an outsider, but it's going to be great because he's going to share a lot of his experiences in bringing some of that outside mentality to the industry. So thank you so much, Shane, for joining us. Thanks a lot. I also have uh, Chris here who's going to be participating in some of the back and forth and helping me out. So I'd love to just start always at the beginning. So what's been your career trajectory thus far? I mentioned you were an outsider. How did you get from the world of tech in some ways, right? Your background in tech into running operations for Rossman? Yeah, funny story, really. I was a chief of staff at a software company in Toronto. And prior to that, spent a lot of time in ops and certainly the revenue side, the sales side for a couple of other startups, software startups. Early in my career, I spent a lot of time in manufacturing operation stuff and what I would call OP&I, operational planning improvement type roles. And I got headhunted for the job. And I picked up the phone, uh, had a dialogue with an executive recruiter and like they are, they're a little sneaky at the beginning. I didn't know much about the firm that he was inquiring about, but he finally sort of showed his hand a bit and said it was an architect firm. And I said, why would I want to work for an architect firm? And he said to me, he said, you got to meet the founder. So, you know, what I was telling you earlier is many of my last jobs have been with founder CEOs and more specifically entrepreneurs. And I took it at face value and I sat down with Eric Rossman and, and wouldn't you know it, this guy's an entrepreneur first. And not only is he an entrepreneur, he's an entrepreneur that loves the hyper growth tech side of business. And he knew that there was a way to build an architect firm different and partly why he branched out on his own. And, you know, once he started sort of bouncing off a bit of a cap wall, as far as his own bandwidth, he recognized that he had to make a decision to either bring somebody else in who could do this or stay small and make it a bit of a lifestyle play. And yeah, Long-winded answer, but that's how this whole thing started. And, uh, you know, the other neat thing that a lot of people don't know, I think more nowadays, but at the beginning, a lot of people don't realize that Rossman Architecture is actually a husband and wife firm. So, you know, Eric's the principal architect and the entrepreneur, but Sarah is all, she's the back office. She's our senior executive in charge of culture and finance and 
not an entrepreneur necessarily, but boy, is she ever important and important to the entrepreneur just like I am. And it's the three of us now that really, I think Sarah refers to us as a three-headed snake or something, but we're, we really mesh well on running the business and stick to our swim lanes, George. And uh, yeah, it's been a fascinating journey, but I agree with you. I'm an outsider for sure. And I've had a steep learning curve on the space, no doubt about that. So I'm interested in this kind of uh, the three-headed snake here in the overlap that you have with Sarah. Like, What makes your role very distinct that you contribute to both that team that exists right now? Yeah, no, great question. So the coolest thing about our relationship, other than the fact that they're just lovely people and the three of us are moral fits, I'd say. I'm older than them and they recognize that I have experience. And unlike a lot of founders, a lot of owners, they don't have an ego that gets in the way of that. So the hats that I constantly wear change from being their MD and running their business to being coaches to them directly, helping mentor them. I'd say both of them. I think I took the job assuming it would be Eric only. But uh, yeah, you know, my relationship, my professional relationship with Sarah is equal and as maybe even more important than my you know, my relationship with Eric. I, I wouldn't have said that at the beginning. It's taken a year of experience to get to that point. But I think the thing that makes us really unique is that ability. We can pivot. And the key to that success, honestly, is around just human respect. You know, there's a lot of respect that goes both ways. And I respect them as my bosses at the end of the day and the owners of the business. And we make decisions because we're very different skill sets collaboratively. And our entrepreneur, Eric, is integral to our scalability and knowing where we need to pivot and where we want to go. And our execution and the importance of the people certainly weigh heavy on Sarah's side of the house and myself. And obviously, like any business, we have to be fiscally responsible. So, you know, often entrepreneurs don't have that skill set or don't pay attention to it. Often they aren't the best people to hire. Often they have a core skill set that they need to stick to, whether it's in this case, architecture or BD or operations. Look at all the big billion dollar firms and think of all the individuals that get the credit for being the founder CEOs and no two are the same. They all have very unique skill sets, whether it's jobs and marketing, you go on and on and on. Toby from Shopify is a developer. If you can keep them in their swim lane and keep them what they do the best, and they don't have an ego that unfortunately creeps beyond that, then you've got a pretty cool recipe for success. What's been your role specifically in relation to them? Like, How would you define what you do on a in the business? Yeah, good question. It's really tough. I'm the business of the business. So I'm doing everything. You know, that's everything from, you know, making sure that top line growth is staying in check with our spend, making sure that operationally we are using the right cadences, using the right rhythms, using the right tech deck. This is how Monograph came to play. I'm just making sure that, I guess in the end, the best way to sum it up is my client are the people at Rossman, and that includes the Rossmans themselves. But I'm responsible for the back office side of the house specifically when it comes to buttoning up efficiencies and making sure our skilled talent can do what they get paid for, which is be architects. So they're not fumbling around with ops or IT or finance or hiring or firing or any of that kind of stuff. We manage all that. And the coolest indicator in the last nine months around that, George, honestly, is We've tripled our revenue and we haven't even doubled our spend. 
And it's basically because we've just streamlined this relationship. And again, can't say enough about the brilliance of Eric recognizing this. I remember him literally drawing this concept on the back of a napkin over our second or third meeting having lunch. And he told me very explicitly exactly how he saw this happening. And I drank the Kool-Aid that day. And I said, I think I'm pretty interested in this. I think I can execute on this. And so far, we've been cooking with gas. That's for sure. What was the delta between or the things that you saw that needed to be improved from day one when you came in? And what were the things that you ended up doing to help improve that? So I'll start with what's most important to me. I think the most important thing to top and bottom line growth and just health in general to a business is culture. And Sarah knew that when I joined. She knew that culture was incredibly important and not only to her personally, to the success or failure of the business. So one of the first things we had to figure out was the type of culture we wanted to have and how to execute on that. When I got here, it was a little fragmented. Great people, but the culture wasn't sticky yet. I think partly because it wasn't really defined yet. And the other thing about culture is culture is always going to be predicated off of the efficiencies and just the work environment in general. In order for your culture to be great, you have to make sure that the people have what they need to build a great culture, to be happy. Culture basically means a group of happy people, right? That love coming into work. So we started to spin the thinking around, we're going to predicate our culture on accountability. We're going to stop feeling like a clock punching environment. And we're going to ask point blank what it is that people want or need from their job to make them better at their job. And slowly but surely, we started to put things in place. So a CRM came up. A tool to help manage my projects was a very early indicator from the principal architects. They did have one at the time. It wasn't working out very well. Implementation was really hard. And that led me to another issue. We didn't have ops. We had no one that actually owned ops. Everybody was trying to do ops. So we pivoted a guy who wanted to be ops and is a bit of a unicorn because you know not only is he an architect by education and stuff and can speak that language, which is an absolute godsend for an ops guy in, in this business. He's also, from a DNA point of view, one of the best young operators I've ever seen. We got to put him in, into a great seat and then give him tools like this. And you guys know Andrew because he's very monograph facing, but he owns all this stuff now for Rossman. And now we have the rhythms around the leadership team. So the principal architects, ops, you know, myself having cadences, making sure that we're habit forming these types of relationships. And as you guys, I'm sure know, and everybody does, this filtrates. So if you can build that at the top level, this is going to get to the bottom level. And I like to say it took days. It probably took a good four months, maybe five months before it got nice and sticky. But you know, for, for the last several months, guys, it's just been an incredible place to work. And I feel very confident that that would be echoed in an absolute sense. And you know, we're just having so much success doing that. The Rossmans themselves are in a much better headspace. They're way less stressed. Another thing that you guys will get a kick out of that I started to preach a lot is, is think like an owner. I need my staff to understand that you don't get the stresses that the Rossmans have to deal with. This is their livelihood, right? You guys are talking about a paycheck. They're talking about potentially losing their house and everything if this goes the wrong way. And that stress obviously filtrates as well into culture. People start showing the more negative sides of personalities when they get stressed and stuff. Alleviating those types of things, bringing out the best in people by making them happy and, and 
mitigating stress, that's a big deal. And I've talked about the fact that we've tripled our top line from an MRR point of view already. A lot of people ask why. My answer is what I just said to you. We're a group of people that really enjoys coming into work again. We're one tribe. You know, we, we love to be here. We have leaders and, and owners that are just fantastic human beings that drink the Kool-Aid. We're incredibly collaborative. I mentioned in the, the pre-talk that, you know, I'm a little old fashioned. I still believe in vertical structure. I know that's not very vogue these days, but I do believe in vertical structure that has mutual respect top to bottom, incredibly collaborative top to bottom. But I do think there's been a bit of an over pivot where leadership has been undervalued. I think leadership is very, very important. And I believe that it is easily drawn up through a vertical structure. And I want to ask if you could go more detail into this idea of rhythms, cadences, repeating patterns about how you operate. You mentioned before the talk that even just starting to implement them is most of the work at the beginning. If you could just go into more detail, maybe about examples of cadences, what it looks like, stuff like that. Yeah. So for me in the beginning, my very first cadence, and you'll laugh about this because it seems so fundamental, was one-on-ones. I started having weekly one-on-ones with the entire leadership team. And part of it too is I'm a big fan of the first 90 days. I don't know if you've ever read that book. But I really wanted to build the right relationships early on. And it was funny because I'm getting sized up too, obviously. And, and a lot of these people have been here for a long time at this stage. And what I was really trying to accomplish, and it's one of these things that you don't get from the other end until it's kind of a hindsight thing. But I, I was just trying to build some rapport, trying to build some connection with the staff and get into a good rhythm where they knew every Wednesday at nine o'clock, we were going to go for a walk. We were going to have a talk. That was my very first cadence, which obviously is still sticky today. It eventually pivots into more of a work cadence where we're talking about very specific things to their responsibilities and their need for collaboration. The next big one was around what I call project management. And this was where Monograph showed up. It was my very first, I'll call it big decision after joining. And it's because I couldn't talk to a principal architect that could talk to me about all the projects that they were responsible for. And the biggest reason why is, as you guys know, in, in an architect rhythm, things kind of start and stop. So it's pretty easy if you're managing 40 projects, for example, that 25 of them may not be active. And if they're not active, they're kind of out of sight, out of mind. And the challenge there is I can't run the right proactive business and make the right strategic decisions if I'm only getting reactive stimulus. And obviously, this goes upstream to Sarah and Eric as well. So by getting monograph in play and then starting what I called, first off was regular project review meetings. So every Friday, there'd be a sit down with a project review. I've since handed that off to Andrew Ops deals with it now. So it's a lovely cadence. But then the other one was what I ended up coining a, a forecast rhythm because I had no idea what we were going to bill every month until three weeks after the month was over and we had the month closed. And again, I couldn't make the right fiscal decisions if I didn't know you know, roughly what we were going to look like 90 days out, 80, 188 days out. So the difference for me, guys, was it wasn't a sales forecast rhythm because it wasn't at the ops level, like the opportunity level. It was based on invoicing. So I had to pivot a little bit with it and you know, a bit of learning there. But now we run this incredible, you know, every Wednesday forecast review with my head architects. And not only 
you know, are these guys within one or 2% every month as far as accuracy, which is incredible. I wish I would have got that from my old sales team. But they are also, we're sharing this with the entire teams. We've built a whole bonus structure now around our forecast reviews, top to bottom, back to culture. We continue to add value to the culture, which in turn continues to show efficiency gain, which in turn continues to make us more money. So it's just the coolest equation. But to your question, Chris, it doesn't happen if you don't start these cadences and have these rhythms. You have to have that. And Eric Rossman asked me one day a few months ago, he goes, what did you do? How did you do this? And I said, I wish I could tell you I'm really, really smart, but I'm not. I'm just really, really good at doing the same shit over and over and over again. And that's really my secret sauce. I'm great at that. I'm great at staying consistent. I'm great at just running the cycles, running the cycles, running the cycles. And I, I really believe, I think people worry that that's going to annoy staff. I think it's the total opposite. I think they love it. I think they love knowing what's going on. I think they recognize how much more efficient it makes them. I know all my next layer, my leadership team, all of them are running regular weekly one-on-one cadences now. They're running regular team stand-up meetings. This stuff didn't exist before I got here. And these are all the reasons why we're just crushing it right now as a team. How does the, this seems like you're also fostering a culture of transparency within the team as well. What does that end up looking like? How in the weeds do you get into the forecasting side and is it with all team members is just project managers that are mostly aware of the financial side How everybody is that? everybody everybody and and you know it's funny because it's a uh, very much a me thing again i'm transparent to a flaw and you know i'm also buttoned up enough to know it with certain hr scenarios that you have to you know use your head a little bit but you know dealing with the discomfort around my transparency early on even with the owners was interesting and but I'm going to go out on a limb here because I don't know for certain, but I I think they both love it. I think everybody in the company loves the ability to be that open book. Fosters itself around the concept of the five dysfunctions of a team, which is another book that I I mentioned is is kind of my Bible. I, I really believe that as long as respect is there, as long as, as, you know, everybody's treating each other in the correct manner, there is almost nothing like literally almost nothing that shouldn't be openly discussed. I feel like people closing doors are really missing an opportunity. I think the team likes to be involved in these conversations. I think people like being treated with that kind of respect. I value their opinion. It may not be their responsibility to figure out our forecasting, but I I do like to hear, regardless if it's the most junior technician or the most senior architect, how this stimulus makes them feel and what they think. And I think it makes us a stronger, bigger, better, faster team, guys. It's, uh, yeah, you know, I, I get that there are certain areas where you're supposed to be a little less transparent, but unfortunately, I think it's a greatest strength, greatest weakness thing when it applies to me a little bit. Do you see engagement within those employees at the project level when they have that level of transparency? In other words, like, are they either more invested in the project outcomes or are they because they understand where the budget is, what the actual financials of a certain product is, does that lead to any other of these kind of, uh, we talked a little bit about efficiency gains, but is there anything else there that also ends up being a net benefit? Sure. The efficiency gain, I get that it's kind of a sterile world, but the reality is it's multiplex, right? They become more vested. 
right? They're on the same page with you from a success point of view. When you are transparent about your strategy, when you are transparent about your books, when you're transparent about the decisions you make, the whys behind them, when you actually ask for their opinion, I believe that the only thing that this has is positive impact. And if you don't want to call it efficiency, then then call it being human. It makes their life better. They enjoy their job more. It mitigates things like attrition. You know, I'm spending way less money with voluntary attrition. People aren't quitting, right? Our hiring process, another big cadence that Sarah and I started together after I joined was the concept of hiring slow and making sure that it's, a, again, a very collaborative process. All of us are different. All of us can see and smell and taste different things, right? And the other thing is, once you build this culture, George, and this is what I love, is it becomes protected communally, right? The entire staff now have ownership of protecting the culture. So as you know, hiring is far from a perfect process. People make mistakes in the hiring process, but our mistakes get caught much quicker now because everybody's vested on protecting the culture. And yeah, back to why I think transparency is so important. I really do believe that you end up not only getting more value, you end up giving more value. And that is a key value at this place. We value them. Every individual in this place values the other and values their, we're all here for, and trying our best to be happy, right? We, we just want to enjoy ourselves, want to go home and enjoy our lives. And you know, we spend often a lot more time with our work colleagues than we do with our partners, for crying out loud. It's a pretty big deal. I often describe how I build a culture to the old, there used to be an old bad ad where predicate itself on the fact that you spend a third of your life in bed, so spend money on your bed. Same sort of concept. You spend a lot of your life at work, so you better damn well enjoy it, right? Like, I mean, Let's make it a, a positive experience. Absolutely. Shane, we have a question from the audience. Maybe you could talk about the size of the firm, what it was like when you joined, where it is now, and what is it on track to becoming? Yeah, I'd love to. So when I got here, we were around 15. As of next week, I think we're 26, so we've almost doubled. We have about six open recs, and we have a forecast right now of around a higher a month for the next 18 months, potentially. Obviously, we're keeping a close eye on uh, you know, the top-line growth and how it's paralleling that, Chris, and with our existing staff, making sure that we're not putting anybody in an overcapacity point of view. But I see the trajectory right now to well over 40 within the next two years. You know, funny enough, I mentioned to you guys, we're building our own new office space around the corner. Originally, it was one floor commercial, which was around 8,000 square feet. Eric and Sarah realized, you know, by the time it's done, we're probably going to need twice that. So we've just added an additional floor of office space at our new home. And you know, I think that was probably a pretty smart decision. So yeah, we've gone from almost doubling in staff to almost tripling in revenue inside a year. And our forecast right now is more of the same for the next. Right now, when I look at my one, two, three-year lens, so far, there's no real risk on that slowing down. I want to take a, a minute to step back a little bit and talk a little bit about like the relationship between cadences and ultimately the impact that you've had in helping to triple revenue, basically, for this year. And the year's not done yet, right? So who knows what that might look like. But how are you implementing that cadence? Like, what are the questions that you're answering that help you then close more work? Or like, what is the connection between that meeting that you're having on a weekly basis um, yeah. to understand forecasts and then actually being able to attract new work to come into the business? I think sometimes people 
don't understand the connection there and the importance of like why a specific type of meeting might actually have this type of outcome. Yeah. Well, it's funny too, George, because it's very different than I think what me and, and Eric Rossman specifically thought at the beginning. So Eric is responsible for our top line growth. Eric's relationships and how respected Eric is by our existing client base has been the biggest reason why the revenue has been there to support the process change. I really have had very little to do so far from a sales point of view or a BD point of view on adding to our top line. Some minor things for sure. And I'm, you know, I'm guessing Eric and Sarah will give me more credit than I deserve on that. But the truth of the matter is Eric gets an immense amount of credit for the relationships and just the public opinion on him and what he does and what he does well. Where I've made it doable is I've cleaned up our ability to deliver. So that money was always sitting there. We couldn't go after it because we felt like we didn't have capacity. The reality is, is we had tons of capacity. We just had all kinds of responsibility creep and the structural problems bottom up just weren't clean. And part of that was, again, even culture. You know, there was a bit of an opposing force to, you know, Eric getting things done that we had to clean up. But once I tidied it up with the rhythms, once we took the squiggly lines that I was talking to you about and, and made them erect, kept them in their swim lanes, so the sky was the limit. And not only did we just come off a 3x month, but we did it with zero bandwidth issues. Like, in fact, we have more capacity. And the biggest reason why is we've just got everybody adding the value where their core skill set is. They're in their swim lane. We spent a bit of money on support. Funny enough, that was a challenging conversation at the beginning when I got here is spending money on non-billable was seemed to be counterintuitive to an architect firm philosophy. But, you know, we spent a bit of money on, I think out of the first four hires, three of them were non-billable and we tidied that up and we moved a big billable resource into a non-billable function, the director of ops, pretty scary concept, but it didn't take long for these changes really to get sticky and show the change in horsepower. Once we started, I think part of it probably was comfort for Eric. Once he got comfortable that we could handle more and he didn't think that his people were overworked, he started shaking the trees and work started coming in. Another big thing I did, guys, and part of it's through Monograph and even this cadence right now, is I got way more aggressive with some of the social media side. I started posting every time we hired somebody. I started you know, posting a lot of Monograph stuff. I found you guys because I paid attention to a LinkedIn feed and watched one of these, George. It resonated with me. You felt like thought leaders and it led me down the path to end up becoming a monograph client. So those things, I think, were their nuances. I don't think people get the importance of them because they're subtle. But, you know, every day I was doing stuff like that for the first three, four five months. And slowly but surely, the funny thing for us, I know, you know, we're Canadian. We sit on the other side of the river in the Quebec side in the Ottawa region. And most Ottawa developers didn't know anything about us. And 60% of our business was done on the Ontario side and Ottawa side. So it's been pretty cool just the fact that people are starting to notice us even outside a region. Like we're starting to get some pretty interesting inquiries. And that includes from our competitive landscape. And the neat thing from, again, Sarah and Eric's point of view is transparency also reflects when it comes to this. I have no problem at all sharing with all my competitors what we're doing because I love that we're being thought leaders. I love that Eric is an entrepreneur and leads with that kind of a spin. I love the way 
We have Sarah and how important Sarah fits with how we run the executive. And I know that we're going to continue to innovate for many, many moons to come and, and always be thought leaders for our space. And it would make me really happy if some of my regional competitors realize that they should get on the phone and, and start using Monograph. I think that'd be a good thing. Because I do think that it's a bit of a late adopter space. And bringing a guy from an early adopter space into a late adopter space is kind of cool, isn't it? It was a pretty genius move by the Rossmans. And I love the fact I'm the guy reaping the rewards from it, but what a cool play. And that's where it all started, right? I think a lot of your strategies also come from the tech world in some way where there's transparency. There's no shortage of marketers or salespeople trying to give away their secrets. And there's this kind of thinking around how it's beneficial for them because they have to like level up, right? There's this kind of your main competitor is yourself in some way and how you can grow and, and be better. And having a good competitive landscape helps you just perform at a higher level. Have you seen anything from conversations that you've been having with people in the region of like what you're doing at Rossman? Has that had any kind of impact on the way they're thinking about operations in general? Yeah, I think so. Some of this is sort of third hand. I, I know Eric's getting some feedback about hiring me from some of his colleagues, some of our competitors. I know people have inquired about how it's going. And obviously the feedback right now is pretty five-star even through LinkedIn again and stuff, just based on who's following us and who's making comments now. Back to the transparency and the efficiency gains. We've also gotten to the point now where Sarah herself has a lot more bandwidth to be a lot more proactive. She just recently got us in bed with a really cool company called Pivot and Edge. And typically they're very supportive in a software startup series A type of a company. So, you know, I think an architect firm is pretty unique to them as well. But We've kicked off with them. It's more in the recruiting realm, but it's very fashion forward, I think, as far as how you know many architects think about recruiting. And these types of things certainly are happening more and more. We're getting, you know, we've had two very interesting new BD presentations this week with some of the bigger builders in region, and they seem to have gone really well. People seem to be pretty interested in us and certainly like what we're selling like what we're spinning and you know, back to culture that applies to clients as well, right? Where it applies to the people we hire, it applies to the vendors we decide to use. Like we really make that a, an absolute sort of premise. So we're pretty selective, even though we're growing the way we are, we're not getting out of our swim lane at all. We're not deviating from our strategy. We're not doing a lot of things that typically entrepreneurs like to do. And again, hats off to Eric, because I know it's hard on him because he is an entrepreneur. Tough for him not to do the shiny object pivot. And as you guys probably know, entrepreneurs are usually miles down the field when it comes to most people. And him staying in line with what we're doing and what's working is great. Another big line you hear me say to people constantly here that comes from a, a good friend of mine, Julian LeBlanc, is be where your feet are. Right? I love to really sink that home with the team constantly. Be where your feet are. And our feet are in a really cool spot right now. There's zero reason for us to want to be anywhere else. But human beings still need reminders. And back to rhythms and cadences, another big reason why they're a necessity. They're great reminders. If you're running these things regular enough, you know people can't get too many days down the wrong side of the stream because you can reel them in so quick, right? Yeah. So it's very, very important stuff. And again, I wish I could talk about being a genius, but the reality is, is everything I do is pretty basic stuff. I just execute well on it. Let's say a small firm 
came to you or a firm that was about 10 to 15 people or even smaller than that. Like, and they came to you and they asked, Shane, what could I do today that could have a massive impact on my business? And what would be the kind of first type of questions you might ask them or how would you help them along the way? Well, yeah, for me, the first thing that I would do is certainly make sure that they knew I was willing to help and I would want nothing for it. So I never muddy the waters there and the Rossmans know that as well. I get a lot of people that inquire from $200 million businesses all down to four people shops. And I get a lot out of that as a human being. I like the respect. I like the, you know, helps me sleep at night, George. So that's the first thing that I would find out is make sure they know that I don't want anything for it. And I'll certainly make time if I have it to help them. And if I can't help them, I'll be pretty damn transparent about it. So, and after that, I would talk to them about how many hats people are wearing. How do you have it structured? I would try to sort of figure out core skill sets, especially from the the person asking, because often the easiest thing to figure out early on is that person's probably trying to do too much, especially in a small outfit, especially if they're the leader. Often that's a huge bottleneck. It's why a lot of our competitors never grow much more past 20 people. It's from a human capacity, unless you're extremely exceptional, you probably don't have the mental bandwidth to get much bigger than that if you're going to own every decision, right? Right. So uh, yeah, I think don't know if I really answered the question, but I think the biggest answer to that question is I would certainly make time and help if I could. And usually in small outfits, a lot of it is around structure. A lot of it is around rhythms. I have a great friend who owns a much larger firm with different challenges. But the one thing that's fascinating, the one thing that's very similar still is that person has way too much and is exceptional and has incredible bandwidth and is just a remarkable human being. But in order for her to get to the next level, she has to start putting some people around her that she can delegate at a very senior level, right? So it's pretty interesting stuff. And same thing. I don't know if I'm smart enough to help a person like that, but if they ask for my help, I'll certainly try my best. And yeah, I get a lot of satisfaction out of it. And it's why I've been asked many times why I don't consult or why I'm not a coach. No chance I could ever do it. No skin in the game for me. I need the kind of connection that I have with Sarah and Eric Rossman, the kind of connection I had with uh, Jens Kartstoff when I worked overseas and Grant Coleman and you know Jason Cottrell. I, it's very important to me that I have that kind of feeling with the people I work for and with. And the debate going on because of COVID now about remote work and in-office work. And you know, I know it's very subjective, but I think you lose a lot from a guy like me anyhow if I'm remote. I think a, a big part of my value is very organic. Yeah, that's cool to hear. I think it's a couple of topics that I'd like to dive into real quick before we open it up for Q&A is you mentioned bonus structure. And I'm sure that people ears might have been ringing when they heard that because that might be somewhat foreign. How does it work? Maybe to unpack that for us. Like, What does a bonus yeah. structure mean within an architecture firm? Well, it's pretty funny, right? Because again, I'm from a software background where, especially on the sales side, this stuff's all built into software startups and software startups are often heavily capitalized. And it's not necessarily about even running in the black, right? You know, often they run in the red because it's about hyper growth and you know exit values and stuff like that. And a lot of the incentive to staff, not just sales, is usually around target hitting and incentivizing the target hitting with some sort of what's in it for me. So I got Sarah in line with the idea of I'd like to try something like that here. And we have a bonus structure at Rossman that according to 
many of the more senior people that work here, they've never seen before in an architect firm that applies to the entire staff, whether it's admin, back office staff, IT, principal architect, doesn't matter. The only thing we've done it to sort of differentiate a little bit hierarchically is we've applied the percentages against base salary. So as everybody knows, base salary is probably a little different if you're in the first year of your career as opposed to the 20th. But that's the only thing we've done. And we built targets. Sarah and I spent a lot of time at the end of last year in, in Q4 coming up with targets that she felt comfortable with. And we got pretty darn aggressive. Like these weren't 20% growth targets, George. These were two, three X growth targets. And we got a little, little gut check from the CFO. We have a remote CFO. And in the end, it got blessed. And it's been a massive success. And I love, again, what it's done with culture. And we set the bar high. And I'm happy to say for Q1, we're going to do about 110, 111% of our Q1 target, which is super cool because it means everybody in our company just got full attainment of their Q1 bonus. This is also really fascinating because the other flip side to this is before everything is like BD is, is solely in the shoulders of the founder. But now when it's everyone that has a little bit of that responsibility. Who else could you bring on that could sell your business if not the people? Staff. Staff, right? Getting them to be super, and if they're super excited and they're incentivized for it, then that is is pure alignment in my my opinion. Sure. You think of how much it helps my spend when it comes to recruiting, George. It's massive. Again, multi-pronged, but we don't have BD. We literally don't have BD. Hmm. I was brought on because I had a BD background, but we still don't have dedicated business development or sales. And we still don't need it. The way we're doing it right now is very touchless. It's by reputation. It's through marketing and inbound stuff. It's a lot of pull, not push. It's lovely. Like it's a great problem to have. And I can't, again, give Eric himself enough credit. So much of this is off the fact that we had some really big clients when I got here that gave us some work. And part of the reason why they gave us some work was they loved Eric, but they didn't want to blow Eric's head off because they knew it was a small company. Mm-hmm. As they watched Eric's company pivot, they've been calling him more and more and more about, hey, what about this? What about this? People in the region that have been using our competitors have started to pick up on the fact that we exist. We're starting to get inbound calls saying, hey, We usually use these guys, but we'd like to get some pricing from you. We've had to do very, very little. And I think we're going to probably, Sarah was in today with me for a while. One of the big talks was around B. I do think we're going to probably have to get a little more focused on some dedicated BD in the next couple of quarters, probably just because of how quickly we're scaling. But yeah, it's been pretty impressive. And I like how you kind of led that. It is all predicated around how you incentivize your staff, how great of a culture you have. Like we get work from the most junior, junior, all the way up to the most senior, senior. We get referrals for hires the same way. Everybody talks. Tell me what the value is of the organic marketing publicity I'm getting by people talking about how much they like work. Could be to a friend, could be to a boyfriend, could be to their parents, could be at the golf course. All these things are very, very important things. And yeah, you tell the staff that, they mean that to you and and that you recognize that they're the big reason why we're getting this done. That's the right way to treat people, isn't it? Absolutely. I think we have some questions uh, lined up from in the chat. 
the first one is, this is an interesting one, right? Because I think what you're preaching and a lot of people that are guests might be today come from various different levels of leadership. Some of them actually work in firms. And so this question is, is relevant for those that like what you're saying, probably can't go work and apply at Rossman necessarily, yeah. but would like to bring some of that change in-house. And so what would you recommend to those that like want to help influence the perspective of their employers to think this way or to maybe take some of this and maybe watch this video and kind of pick up some of these notes? What would you suggest culturally that they could yeah. do? Or- well, it's tough working at bottom up. That's for sure. I, you know, you're going to laugh at my answer, but the first thing I tell somebody is go find the right owner. If they can't find the right owner or if they believe the right owner wants to do that and just doesn't know how, then yeah, I think the next big step is similar to what we did here. Figure out what the culture is you want to have and get transparent. Start trusting that you can be transparent. Now, respect people. Recognize that a 21-year-old may have a thought or an opinion that is equally important to your 45-year-old principal architect. And I don't get why people don't recognize that. And I do feel that experience gets undervalued a bit now. Don't get me wrong. I think experience is still very important. But the one thing I will say, especially because of the information age, there's a lot of knowledge very early on in people's career, especially people that are driven, that want to succeed, that are chasing the penthouse. They're often... Now, pretty well read. They often have some pretty interesting things to say about strategy and approach. And that could be BD related. It could be process related. It could be ops related. Like I mentioned Andrew earlier. He's in his early 30s. He's never had an ops role. This guy's exceptional. He is so good at what he does. And even the way he manages me. And we've had that talk because I can talk too much. And I've told him one day because he's a direct to me. I said, if I'm ever not listening, Tell me to shut up. Like, if you don't feel like I'm hearing you, don't worry about stopping me and telling me that I need to hear you. We can have those challenging conversations. It's not going to change how we work together. And, you know, haven't we just built one of the nicest relationships eight, nine months? I love working with this guy. And the best part for me, honestly, Chris, George, is, is I can say that about pretty much 25 people. I center him out. I work with him a lot. But the reality is... I don't have a bad thing to say about one person I work with right now. I love the team and I get more time with some of them, but what a great team. And I do think that starts itself off with with recognizing that you're, you're allowed to be transparent. So we have a question here, Shane. I'm in leadership of a firm and our problem is convincing the team to get on board with the owner's vision. We have a bonus structure and lots of autonomy. Any suggestions? Well, do you agree with the owner's vision? I guess the challenge here is is the owner's vision, correct? Maybe this needs to work itself in reverse. I don't know. If the owner's vision is going to be gospel, then the only thing that can happen now is if the team can't get in line with the owner's vision, in order to avoid the two tribe or multiple tribe problem, in order to avoid cultural erosion, the only real solution at that point is to probably build it again. Because you are in a pretty tough situation at that stage if existing staff can't align with owner culture. My guess is there's a couple people that can't align, and that's some sort of a cancer to the culture. My guess is it doesn't have to be a wholesale change, but you probably have a couple moves you need to make in order to get that alignment. But the one thing I will say, and I'm sorry to hear this, is 
it'll be a horrible place to work until you figure that out. And there's going to be a ton of attrition. And wouldn't you know it that typically the attrition you need in order to fix the culture won't be the people that leave. It'll be the people that unfortunately could have been part of the solution that leave. Another question is, how do you hold the line on quality projects and products with all this growth? Yeah, interesting. It is a big talk we're having recently and certainly a concern of uh, Eric Rossman himself. We have some pretty buttoned up stuff that he built. And the one thing I will say is with all the efficiency gains and the fact that we've sort of kept people in their swim lanes, it's allowed my senior uh, team leads to have a lot more bandwidth now when it comes to quality control and helping with the product coming out from juniors. So it's kind of chicken egg, guys. It's happening organically, but it is something that we've started to be a little more aware of that certainly Eric Rossman himself is worried about. And so far, we've had no indicators that the quality of work is diminishing. But as per usual, we like to be proactive on this. So we've started some dialogues and certainly involved the senior team to figure out ways to make sure that we don't see any erosion in the quality of our work. Some are asking about bonus structures. So they're asking, is the bonus structure tied to BD performance, project profitability, or both? You know what? And this is going to sound really strange to anybody that's ever built one. It's tied to top line revenue only. We're so happy right now with our efficiencies when it comes to our margins that we built something. And if your architect's listening to this, you understand that there's subs involved. Often a lot of top line money isn't net, it's gross. So we teetered on this, went back and forth. We decided to keep it really, really clean and we just based it on top line. And it's partly why we built pretty big targets because we were going to bonus people on top line or, or gross revenue. But we obviously keep close tabs on the delta between gross and net. We have implemented the way we pay it out is a little cash flow sensitive. So we pay out half of the bonus shortly after the quarter. We hold half of it, making sure that we don't put the business in jeopardy. We have such a great culture, guys, that nobody box at that. And they understand that we're doing it because we're actually trying to maintain the responsibility of, you know, at the end of the day, the people that we employ. So yeah, you know, that, that's how we ended up structuring it. And it, it's very unique. I've never seen one quite like this. Shane, before we started the talk here, we were talking privately about how you use your foresight into future revenue to turn what might, in certain cases, be a loss into actually an internal win. Can you talk about that again? Yeah, sure. And that was very specific to Monograph. And I use Salesforce for my sales CRM. But one of the things I hate it when I got here is that Eric and Sarah couldn't make the right business decisions because they didn't have the data to strategically guide the ship on a proactive level. And part of that was we didn't even know what we build until three or four weeks after the month was over. So when I got Monograph in place and we started getting much better forecast cadences, I got the principles to the point where we can actually forecast out now as much as five, six months. So when I run my forecast cadences now, I'm looking at a snapshot of four or five months, which allows me to see if we have a revenue drop off of any kind. So what I mentioned to you in private is that you know, one of the cool things is because of the annualization of what we do and COVID certainly impacting some things, we know right now, June, some of our projects have been put on hold. We know June might be a little soft. So what this lets us do is instead of real-time experiencing the missed target and the stress around idle hands and all this stuff, we can proactively now schedule some team building activity, holiday time, you know, just general training. And that could be you know, another thing I love about what we do with our culture is we give people the rope to go find training that they want. 
instead of forcing them to take training that we want them to take. Our IT guy loves uh, 3D stuff, you know, VR stuff. He'd love to learn more about that. And there's, you know, potential upside for us if he knows more about that. So why not incentivize him to go do something like that for a couple of days? Uh, our uh, executive assistant has interest in getting way more involved in social media marketing and stuff like that. So, you know, I've sent her on some LinkedIn training. I, I've introduced her to people I know from the software world. Those are the types of things we can do. I worked at a company that these awesome weeks once before. It's the same sort of concept where if we know we're going to run a little low on billable hours, potentially, if I know that with a proper amount of lead time, I, I can turn that time into value add time, not stress time, right? Not time that's going to probably, unfortunately, erode my culture a little bit. And I don't want to spend the next three months fixing my culture because we had one little blip in the road, which you know, inevitably is going to happen. For architects who are right now in architect career path, but are interested in this ops position or function in a business, and there's no one else to look to inside the firm, what might you suggest as starting points for building out that career path for themselves inside the firm or out? Well, they need to go find somebody, preferably in industry if they can. Because, you know, the neat thing about Andrew is, is Andrew had this feeling long before he knew my name and he didn't know how to get there. And I think he knows, you know, after knowing me for almost a year, it would have been a pretty painful process of him trying to get there and would have took a long, long time. So having somebody that understands ops and certainly is a colleague and a friend and somebody that can help him and mentor him, been huge help. And we've certainly been able to expedite that move and not only getting him into the seat, but making him uh, very productive in the seat. If you're sitting in an architect firm and you want to be an ops guy in an architect firm and there isn't anybody around you, my suggestion is reach out to me or Andrew or somebody in your network and have that talk. Gosh, it'll be an expensive build with a lot of mistakes made along the way if you don't have that luxury that Andrew and I had. Hey, it's Chris from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. More than 200 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our CEO, Robert Ewan. Get started at monograph.com. That's monograph.com. Talk to you soon.